Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax as we try to scare the living daylights out of you on this very special Halloween edition. I'm Mark West and on this edition we'll feature ghost hunting, the inevitable disaster of climate change and the living dead. First up, here's the news. A previously unknown population of vampire moths has been discovered in Siberia. And in a Halloween twist, entomologists say the bloodsuckers may have evolved from a purely fruit-eating species. Only slight variations in wing patterns distinguish the Russian population from a widely distributed moth species from Central and Southern Europe, known only to feed on fruit. When the Russian moths were experimentally offered human hands, the insects drilled their hook-and-barbed tongues under the skin and sucked blood. If it turns out that they have indeed caught a fruit-eating moth that has evolved into a blood feeder, it could provide clues as to how some moths develop a taste for blood. Some researchers hypothesise that blood feeding in insects and animals evolved from behaviours such as feeding on tears, dung and pus-filled wounds. We see a progression from nectar feeding and licking or lapping at fruit juices to different kinds of piercing behaviours of fruits and then finally culminating in this skin piercing and blood feeding, said entomologist Jennifer Zaspil from the University of Florida. Chris Nice, a biologist who studies butterfly evolution at Texas State University, said few butterfly and moth species are equipped with the hook and barb lined tongues needed to pierce fruit. The fruit-piercing stage in the first place sets the stage for further transitions into, in this case, the blood-feeding, he said. Only male moths exhibit blood-feeding, raising the possibility that, as in some species of butterflies and other moths, the Russian moths do it to pass on salt to females during copulation. There is no evidence it prolongs the life of the male or anything like that, so we suspect that it is probably going to the female. The sexual gift would provide a nutritional boost to young larvae that feed on leaf-rich but sodium-poor diets. If salt is otherwise limited in the environment, the sexual gift theory would make sense. The Living Dead with Ian Wolfe. The Living Dead? Or does it just feel that way? A bacterium has been discovered deep underground that's a complete biosphere on its own. Candidatus to Zolphorudes or Daxviator can fix carbon, fix nitrogen, synthesise all essential amino acids. It can move. It's an organism that can exist totally independent of other life. It doesn't even need the sun, just sulphur, rock and electrons from the radioactive decay of uranium in the surrounding rocks. The name comes from a line in Jules Verne's Journey to the Centre of the Earth, where the explorers sent a letter from the mysterious people who live at the centre of the earth. It was found three kilometres underground in a gold mine, where there hasn't been any oxygen for at least three million years. It seems likely it would live easily in space, or in planets without an oxygen atmosphere, like Mars. 
It won't take over the world, despite its independence, because the slightest exposure to oxygen will kill it. Of course, the fact it can live independently doesn't mean it evolved independently. A bunch of its genes have been caged from archaea, ancient bacteria, through lateral transfer. Its genes also contain antiviral countermeasures. Whether it siphoned those off incidentally from donor species or actually uses them to guard against parasitic code, there's obviously a history of contact with other life in this bug's family tree. Life in the deep rock reproduces at the rate of thousands of years. The current definition of life includes reproduction. But Peter Watts, biologist, suggests that it may make more sense to define life as the persistence of signal rather than copying the signal everywhere. The implication is that reproduction is just a workaround to get past the fact that the body that carries information wears out and needs to be replaced. It's possible that this ancient bacteria may have given up the habit of reproducing in its safe and unchanging habitat of rock, living its life all alone on towards the end of the planet. You'd have to wait several thousand years to be sure it hasn't reproduced yet. Such an organism would be labelled dead by current definitions, but perhaps the definitions need to change. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. Amy Bullen has gone ghost hunting with the Ghostbusters. If you have an ectoplasmic infestation, listen in and Amy will help you get rid of it. These days, ghost hunting isn't just about a few kids sleeping out in a house that's supposed to be haunted. It's now considered by many ghost hunters to be a science. To back this up, there are so-called scientific explanations of what ghosts are and a whole bag full of scientific equipment that are used by many ghost hunters who take themselves seriously. The most common of these scientific tools is an EMF meter. That is, an electromagnetic field meter which measures electromagnetic waves. Electromagnetic fields, or waves, or radiation, whatever you want to call it, are present everywhere in our environment but are invisible to the human eye. The electromagnetic field consists of two parts, an electrical field which exists when an electrical wire is charged and a magnetic field which is only there when the electric current is actually flowing. So you can have an electrical field if the TV is switched off but still connected to a power point that is on whereas a magnetic field is only there when the TV is actually on. The reason ghost hunters often use EMF meters is that it is believed that strong and or fluctuating electromagnetic fields are related to ghostly activity. One reason posited for this is related to John Joe McFadden's theory of consciousness. The brain generates an electromagnetic field which is measured in medical tests such as EEGs. McFadden argued that this electromagnetic field is, or is the carrier of, our conscious mind. Some ghost hunters argue that when we die, the brain's electromagnetic field survives, and that the ghost is a result of this surviving consciousness. There are some who go even further, and state that the brain's electromagnetic field is transformed into some kind of energy at death. 
So the ghost is a residual effect of the electromagnetic field, just as heat can be a residual effect of a recently turned off light. The other main explanation for the usefulness of EMF meters in measuring ghostly activity is that for some reason ghosts need to concentrate tiny quantities of electricity from other sources so as to reach the physical world, and by doing this they disrupt electromagnetic fields. Now, as far as I can see, these explanations are not detailed enough or involve an electromagnetic source being produced without being plugged into any power, i.e. the human body and brain. That's without even going into the arguments that abound over consciousness and whether an electromagnetic field has anything to do with it. But even ignoring this, it has not been scientifically proven that EMF readings do fluctuate or rise in supposedly haunted locations. The first problem is that most EMF meters used by ghost hunters are designed to measure electromagnetic waves caused by domestic electricity, and so are most accurate at the 50 to 60 hertz frequency range. They're just not designed to pick up frequencies outside this range and although they will give readings outside these ranges, they're really untrustworthy, so can't be relied on to give anything scientifically viable. Whatever EMF meter you're using, you've also got to be aware that most buildings have an electricity supply or are located close to the electricity supply network of overground and underground cables, which will give you high readings on your meter. Things like microwaves, TVs, computer monitors and clock radios will also make your meter reading jump. Even where there are no electrical devices at all, electrical wiring or equipment that is a few rooms away can affect the EMF reading. And if you're a ghost hunter, chances are you've brought audio recorders, digital cameras, video cameras, radios, mobile phones, digital thermometers and other devices that are all going to produce results on your EMF meter. In other words, you have to be really, really thorough, investigate behind walls, under floors, in ceilings, in places nearby, and keep track of what you bring with you that might cause these waves. You have to be aware of everything that could possibly cause electromagnetic waves and you also need to be aware of the limitations and sensitivity of your equipment. If you're going to approach ghost hunting as a science, you need to use scientific methodology as well. You need a hypothesis that says what a ghost is, what you're searching for and why. So you're looking for an unexplainable electromagnetic field between 5 and 50 hertz, for example. If you don't start with a clear hypothesis, then anything at all can be seen as evidence of a ghost. There's a lot of things that science still doesn't completely understand and so can't explain. But if you're going to claim to be scientific, you really need to at least understand the scientific tools you're using, as well as the basic scientific methodology you'll need to employ. Unless, of course, you're using something really fantastic, like the Ghostbusters negative ionizer containment backpack, which just sounds so cool and scientific that it has to work without you even trying. That was Amy Bullen, Hunting for Ghosts. If you're all alone, pick up the phone and call.
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, across Sydney on 2SER, and into your ears on the podcast. Greg Skilbeck is Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Science and Lecturer in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. He explained to Ian Wolfe how he looks at climate change from a geologist's perspective by studying sediments from the seafloor. Hi, I'm Greg Skilbeck. I'm Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Science and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Environmental Sciences. In environmental Sciences, you're looking at climate change from a geologist's perspective. Uh, yes, that's correct. We can use the sediments at the seafloor as a record of climate change over many millions of years. And so how do you collect the sediments? Well, we go to sea in large ships, often with some sort of drilling device attached. We stick it down into the sea floor, pull it back up, and we have a, a cylinder, if you like, a very long, skinny cylinder of sediments, which is a record of what's happened in the past. How do the sediments tell you what's happened, and how does that relate to the climate if it's from the bottom of the ocean? A good question. One of the things that being at the bottom of the ocean means is that it's once it's deposited there, it's far removed from what's happening at the surface, so it gets preserved, which is an important point. You'd be aware that the oceans have formed, they're relatively young geologically, which means they're about 180 million years old, the oldest oceans. Essentially, once they form, any dust or sediment comes in from the side, dust blows in from the continents, and we have lots of uh, animals living in the surface layers of the ocean, microscopic animals, which when they die, their shells sink to the bottom, and that builds up over time a record of the changes that have occurred at the surface of the ocean and in the atmosphere immediately above the ocean. So you do have a record of interactions with the atmosphere that end up at the bottom of the ocean and yes that's correct there's a bit of change that goes on along the way because the oceans themselves are a chemical mix so some of those shells that are sinking to the bottom get dissolved and some of the other materials will react with what's in the water but for the most part the stuff gets preserved and of course it gets preserved in the time order that it occurred in so that's why you have a a record of change against time And how far back can you see? Well, in those oceans, the first sediments occur as soon as the oceans uh, are there. So we have sedimentary records going back 190 million years. The question is not how far back the records go, but what's the resolution of those records? How much detail can you resolve? How much detail can you resolve? (laughs) Well, that changes over time. If you're working on climate-related matters that cycle annually, then you'd like to have annual scale records present. If you're working on things that cycle over a thousand years or more, then of course you want that sort of resolution. And it essentially, the resolution gets worse as you go back in time. I myself am currently working on El Nino records. The big question for for El Nino is, in Australia, is, is there variability at a lower frequency or over a longer time scale than what you would normally find 
El Nino occurring at. El Nino, when we see it manifested in our drought records and those sorts of things, has a regular recurrence every two to seven years. So we'd like to see resolution of slightly less than that two to seven years. If we have two-year records or annual records, that's good for studying El Nino. And would it be a little thumbnail of El Nino for people who aren't familiar with it? Well, El Nino is this phenomenon that occurs mainly in the tropical Pacific, or it's it's manifested mainly in the tropical Pacific. It's a combination of what's happening in the ocean and in the atmosphere. Now, normally, with the Earth spinning around on its axis and sunlight coming in mainly at the equator, that tends to heat up the oceans at around the equator. The air rises and you get a wind circulation pattern that involves the trade winds. Now, the trade winds at the tropics essentially blow from the east towards the west and towards the equator as well. And that tends to firstly blow those warm air towards the west of the Mm -hmm. Pacific, and as that air drags the ocean, um, that causes upwelling in the eastern side of the ocean which brings cold water to the surface. So in a normal circumstance you would have cold surface or coldish surface waters in the eastern tropical Pacific and warm surface waters in the western tropical Pacific and that gradient is what causes the winds to blow towards the west and as they blow across the oceans they pick up lots of moisture and eventually that moisture gets dumped in the western pacific so over northern australia australia um, indonesia um, papua new guinea etc and in the western pacific you tend to have droughts at, at those sorts of times now for some reason that's not clearly understood sometimes that pattern breaks down it breaks down regularly every two to seven years the eastern part of the tropical pacific warms up When that gradient is reduced, the winds don't blow, and in some cases the wind direction actually reverses. And so you don't get these water-laden winds coming across to the Western Pacific. We go into drought. The Eastern Pacific goes into flooding rains and those types of things. So that's the phenomenon that we call El Nino. And has this let you make any predictions looking this far into the past at cycles? Well, that's, I guess that's the, the real big question at the moment. There are essentially two groups of people that are trying to look at, if you like, making predictions about climate records. There's the climate modellers, who are mainly mathematicians and meteorologists and like, and they work out equations for all the physical parameters that are operating in the atmosphere They feed all that information into computers and then they run the model and see what the answers are. There's another group called paleoclimatologists, which tend... I'm a a member of that group, I guess, and we look at what's happened in the past over a fairly, you know, over, well, longer and longer periods. And I guess the basic assumption is that if things have varied regularly in the past, in cycles or whatever, then that will continue into the future. And at the moment, there's not a lot of two-way talk between those two groups. So the answer is yes, we would like to be able to predict the future knowing something about the past, but we'd also like to get that information fed into the models if there's some sort of physical processes controlling 
regular variation in the climate, then we should be able to understand those processes and feed it into the models. And ultimately, the paleoclimate records and the models should agree. If they do, I think that's when the thing will become predictive, if at all. Mm. And, and that's a big if. So what do you find is happening? Are there changes or are there cycles just what they've been over millions of years on and on and on? Well, no, El, El Nino has changed on over longer periods of time. I mean, we know, for instance, that the, over the last 10,000 years, which is a period we call the Holocene, it's the time when most of the human evolution or the most of the human social cultural evolution has taken place sea level's been relatively constant at at that time and we tend to think of the climate as being relatively stable over that time but it hasn't been there has been some variation in climate and for instance we know the records tell us as far as possible that el nino was was much weaker um some 5,000 years ago than it is today and over the last 3,000 years it's been strengthening so there has been some variability and there has been some long scale variability. The periodicity seems to change a bit too it's currently or over the last 100 years since we've actually had records, meteorological records of El Nino the period has been around about 5.2 year repeat period but it's been longer in the past. It's been up around seven years prior to that, for instance. So it does change. Is that five years between the drought and the flood cycle? It's a, no, it's, it's a, a five years for the repeat from drought to drought, and it's on average. It's not, I mean, that's one of the things we don't fully understand. I mean, if you're studying, for instance, the seasons or something to do with annual growth cycles or whatever, and we know that the earth regularly goes through winter, summer, goes through the seasons, and that's on a yearly basis. And it's very regular because it's controlled by the earth's orbit around the sun and rotation on its axis, etc. El Nino doesn't seem to be controlled directly by orbital parameters, so it's perhaps not as regular as something that is. The mechanism seems to be partly related to the winds blowing across this tropical Pacific. You get a build-up of water in the western Pacific, and it's, and it's actually physically higher. When it's at a maximum, the sea level in the western Pacific is about 60 centimetres or so higher than it is in the eastern Pacific. Now, what seems to happen is there's only so much water you can hold up by those winds blowing, and then eventually there's too much there and it breaks down and sort of sloshes back across the, the central Pacific. Now, it happens reasonably regularly, but it's not related to the orbit of the Earth necessarily. So uh, a little bit complex in the way it works. And, and there is some tie-up with seasonality. There seems to be an increasing amount of evidence for the sun, sun cycle, sunspot cycles to be somehow involved in this phenomenon as well. So, it, you know, it's a complex relationship and each of those variable parameters can have its own period or cyclicity involved. And then you've got to start adding together all these periodicities to see when it's strong and weak and what the repeat period is, etc. Terrific. The work is important. I mean, I think the one thing that people need to think about, they're going away and talking about these things, is it's quite common for people commenting on climate to say, 
this is the hundred year flood or this is the you know fifty year flood. We only have records that go back one hundred and thirty years. So the question is, how do you know? It's the 500-year flood or the 1,000-year flood. You can't tell it from the meteorological records. You have to go and look at those longer paleoclimate records in order to do that. Greg Skilbeck, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Ian Wolfe speaking with Greg Skilbeck, studying the history of our climate through sediments on the seafloor. And finally, Ian, you have some information on why a coffee date may not be so innocent. Well, that's right. Psychologist Professor John Barg from Yale University, Dr. Lawrence Williams of the University of Colorado, reported that they've long noted the importance of warm physical contact with caregivers in developing healthy relationships as adults. So they decided to test the impact of warmth on the way adults perceive other adults. So they had research assistants casually ask an undergraduate test subject to briefly hold a warm cup of coffee or a cup of iced coffee while they were asked to assess some personality traits. And what do you know, the participants assessed the person as significantly warmer if they'd just been holding a warm cup of coffee rather than iced coffee. Okay. On the personality scales unrelated to the trait of warmth, there was no difference in how participants who held an iced versus hot coffee responded. In the second study... They held frozen or heated therapeutic packs as part of a product evaluation and then were told they could receive a gift certificate for a friend or a gift for themselves. Those who held the hot pack were more likely to ask for the gift certificate while those who had the frozen pack kept the gift for themselves. So they're surmising that you know the effect of physical temperatures not just on how we see others but affects our own behaviour as well. If you want people to feel warm towards you, give them something warm to hold. So perhaps a coffee date really is quite a nice way to get to know somebody. A nice way or a manipulative way? Well, that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. Ian and I need to run downstairs and find somebody to hold our coffees. If you would like to contact us, if you have any feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, or if you'd like to buy us coffee one day, then send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. You can visit our website at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And there you can find previous episodes and also subscribe to our podcast. Contributing to the program were the android Amy Bullen and the lycanthropic Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by that lycanthrope Ian in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm the murderous Mark West. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Hello, 
Something fresh and the past. 